welcome to Hope City Church, Melbourne, Australia. Stay tuned for another inspiring message. Thank you so much for being here. It is, a, it is a real privilege. I'm going to do a couple of things today. and We're going to start in the book of Ephesians. And uh, I'm going to sort of just unpack some truth um, in the book of Ephesians. I'm then going to, in doing that, explain a concept to you or present a, a, a motif, an idea, a, a thought of what we're going to be looking at today. And then I'm going to unpack that through walking through some Old Testament history. Big picture stuff, all right? We're going to stand back and look at the big Bible picture story, and we're going to end up in the book of Ezekiel. How many of you, your favorite book is Ezekiel? Yeah, a couple. Oh, maybe, maybe. Okay. Today, the, the subject for this message or the title for this message is this. The two shall be made one. The two shall be made one. And yet I'm not speaking about marriage. But I will be speaking about the two shall become one. Let's read Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Everybody say, I was dead. Now, how many of you have physically been dead? Yeah, a couple. Not many. I mean, it, it does happen. I understand that. But all of you can say, I was dead. This is obviously not talking about biological, physical, physiological death. This is talking about sin death. As for you, you were dead in sin. Not physical death. It is sin death. Some people use the term um, spiritual death. I personally don't like that too much because I think many people before they come to Christ are very much spiritually alert. Uh, so maybe it's not the best phrase, although I understand why people use it. Spiritual death. I prefer to use the term sin death or covenant death. You were dead. You were sin death. You were out of covenant with God, the life giver. As for you, you were dead in sin, trespasses and sins, but something happened. Just go down to verse 4 for the sake of time. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, for it is by grace you have been saved. One of the ways that Paul describes our salvation is by saying, you have been raised from the dead. You were dead, but now you've been raised. In other words, you have experienced a personal resurrection. Okay, You've experienced a personal resurrection. And that's one of the ways, one of the motifs, one of the uh, way, uh, uh, metaphors, analogies, whatever, that Paul uses to describe our salvation. You were dead, not physically, in sin death, transgression death, covenantal death, but God has made you alive. Keep reading. Verse, just go down to verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and therefore called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is a physical thing done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... 
In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What a terrible predicament. You were separate. You were foreigners. You were aliens. You were far away. You were lost. You were dead. But now in Christ, you are alive. You are near. You are close. You are sons. You are heirs. You belong to the family of God. One of the things that we don't really have in our society, so you have to kind of get yourself in the zone when you read the scripture, but it was very much part of first century understanding with Jewish people the very sharp distinction between people who were Jewish and those who were not. All right, People who were of the covenant family of God and those who were out of covenant with God. And so there was very much an us and them mentality and understanding that, that all the epistles are written into. And the book of Acts obviously brings that out a real lot. So Paul's saying, listen, those of you who were not born into God's family, you were far away, you've been brought close. Jesus later on uses this picture when he uses the prodigal son story. One son was near, one son was far away. That far away one was brought close. Okay, so it's the same kind of thing. In an alien land and a foreign land brought near. This motif continues. But verse 14 is where I'm wanting to lead us to to, pre to present this concept today. For he, Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one. Say the two, made one. And destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two groups thus making peace and in one body reconciling both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those of us who were near for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. There's no mistake, and you may have heard this before of course, that the cross, Calvary, has both vertical and horizontal implications. The cross unites earth with heaven. It unites man with God. But the cross also has horizontal implications and the dividing wall of hostility between two very different groups of people was abolished in Jesus. And these two very different groups of people are brought together in Christ. The two shall be one in Ephesians chapter 4 is a picture of marriage and the two shall be one is a picture of God and man together united as one that is true but in Ephesians 2 the phrase the two shall be one is not primarily talking about God and man in oneness but different groups of men and women coming together because of Christ this is the year 2017 and it is in John chapter 17 that Jesus prays the high priestly prayer for unity that the work of Christ would accomplish the unity of God with man but also that they would be one together and different groups of people would come together in unity it is the story of the book of Acts 
watching people who are very different find unity in their relationship with Christ. Because we believe that you can have oneness without having sameness. We believe you can, be, you can have diversity and unity together. Again, Ephesians 4 goes on, Paul goes on to say that. The whole concept of maturity is where you can have different people existing together in a unified way. It is on the heart of God to join people together. And in Christ, we have hope for unity between traditionally historical enemies. In Christ, there is hope for unity. And I think it's very fitting in this church to speak about hope. God knows what it's like to be the father of a fractured family. God knows what it's like to be the father of a fractured family. And today I want to present the idea to you that there is no relationship, no community, no family that is so broken that the power of the cross cannot bring people together. And the power of the spoken word through his people, the spirit-inspired word, all God's promises are yes in Christ. And our job is to speak what he says and to say amen to the promise of unity and oneness. Today, for some of you, the two shall be made one, finding hope in fractured family, finding hope for broken relationships is going to be quite a timely word. When I preach, there's a number of things I like to do. Number one, I hope to preach truth that is both timeless and timely. Today, for some of you, this is going to be a timely word. Wow, I needed to hear hope for a fractured family. For some of you, it's not going to be particularly timely or relevant, but what I'm going to share today is timeless truth. And at the right time, you can draw that out of your arsenal and weaponry. Or you can bless someone else with it this week. The timeless truth is both timeless and timely. And truth is good any day of the week. Okay, don't come to church and leave and go, oh, that wasn't really for me today. No, if you heard truth, then that's good for you eight days of the week. I mean, that's, the truth is just always good. So truth is both timeless and timely. The other thing I like to do when I, when I preach is to follow Paul's advice to Timothy, where he says, I want you to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. That's why I've taken time to read scripture today. Later on, we're going to read probably the whole chapter of Ezekiel because I believe in reading the scripture. Read the word, even if you don't understand every bit of it. John, if John wrote Revelation, he said, blessed is he who reads the words of the book. You don't have to get every word to be blessed. You just read it. Okay, so as a preacher, one of my ma- I, I need to give myself to the public reading of scripture. I want to do that and to preaching and to teaching. And some people talk about preaching and teaching, they think it's the same thing. I see a slight difference. I see teaching as being explaining truth. This is how it works. This is what it is. This is how to understand it. It's explaining truth. Whereas preaching is more proclaiming truth. It's just saying, this is true, y'all. Come on, amen. You know, it's like, it's like this is true. Teaching is more explaining. So I'm going to do a bit about that today. I want to read some scripture, which I've done. I'm going to do that again later. I want to teach some things and I want to preach some things. And today we're going to find hope for two becoming one. God is the father of a fractured family. But through Christ and the spoken word of his people, unity can come even to the most broken of relationship and to the most broken community. All right. 
So now we're going to walk through some Old Testament history and I'm going to show you that God understands what it's like to be the father of a family that's fractured. Because it starts way back in Genesis. God, the perfect father, with Adam and Eve, however we're supposed to understand that story, has a unified picture of humanity together as one with Adam and Eve. And the story about the serpent, about the accuser, about the snake, is often told in light of the fact that the snake wanted to bring a wedge in relationship between God and Adam and Eve. And that is true. But there's more to it than that. When the snake came to Eve, he said, did God really say? We understand that, didn't he? He wanted to cast doubt as to what God had said. But listen, who had told Eve what God had said? Eve wasn't around on the day when God had talked to Adam about the tree. Eve was not part of that conversation. The only reason she knew about that conversation is because Adam had relayed it to her later on. She was not privy to that as a first-hand witness. So when Snake came to Eve, he was also saying, can you really trust your husband? Did Adam really tell you the truth of what God said? And the reason that that was deceptive is because Snake was a credible witness. The thing that makes deception deceptive is that it's deceiving. You and I, I mean, for years I thought Eve was an absolute twit. You know, <laughs> I mean, for goodness sake, if you see a snake, you run away. Okay, that's the first thing you do. If that snake talks to you, you bolt. I mean, you don't talk back to it, for goodness sake. And if that snake's the devil, you don't have negotiation with him. How stupid can you be? But no, 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 no. Snake was their friend. The way the story's told, the only friends that Adam had before Eve came along were the animals. Apparently he talked to them, okay? This is the whole picture that's painted. Snake and Adam shared a birthday. They were created on the same day. They were mates before Eve ever came along. Snake was at Adam's buck show before they got married. I mean, these guys go way back. And he was there on the day when God spoke to Adam about the tree. So when Snake comes to Eve and says, oh, you know what? God did not really say that. We see a credible witness to that conversation, casting doubt as to whether Eve can really trust Adam. Now, this is interesting because all of us will face this in life. We will all come across situations in our family in our workplace, in our church, amongst our friends, where you are told a story from a friend that you go, oh, okay, that's how the conversation went, okay. And then another credible witness comes and says, oh, no, that's not really how it went. Okay? And one of, only one of them's right, or fully right. And Eve, all she had to do that day was not cut the snake's head off, because that was a, a friend apparently, right? All she had to do that day was to say, thank you, snake. I hear you. I'm going to go back to Adam and ask him. How different things may have been if Eve just checked out with Adam and in the cool of the evening, that evening, while they were walking together with God, said, oh, by the way, guys, do you mind just clarifying something with me? 
Well, you've never been in that situation, have you? Where someone's come to you and said, oh, no, I was there. This is what Andrew really, oh, this is what that person really said. How much more, what would have happened? Here we go. We're not just drawing a wedge between Adam, Eve and God. His objective was to draw a relational wedge between Adam and Eve. Can you really trust your husband? Trust me, I was there. Adam's actually not telling you the truth. The point is, this relational, what happens then, of course, is we saw God, who's the perfect dad, had a fractured family. And this continues all the way through the book of Genesis, through the stories of Adam and Eve and their descendants and the patriarchs. We've got Cain and Abel. Cain gets jealous. He kills his own brother, the older killing the younger, a motif that continues all the way through to the first century. The older persecuting the younger, Cain and Abel. Abraham comes along, has a son called Ishmael through Hagar. 14 years later, has Isaac. And Ishmael, the 14-year-old teenager, persecutes his baby brother. Which doesn't make any sense to me. As a a man who's got a teenager and and a toddler, it makes no sense to me how a teenager can persecute a little baby. But again, it's the older persecuting the younger. This ended up being a picture of the old and new covenants. 1,400 years later, okay? Oh, not 1,400 years later, but 1,400 years, the Mosaic covenant existed before Jesus' covenant came. And so Ishmael was 14 years old when he persecuted the new son and God said, get rid of that son and Hagar and we have a broken family yet again. Isaac was the promised son. He had twins. Oh, no, he, he didn't, but his wife did. And in the womb... Those twins fought. The older comes out, the younger one is holding his heel. And they grow up while the younger robs the older and the older seeks to kill his younger brother. Again, the older persecuting the younger, we see a fracturing in that family. That younger son, Isaac, has Jacob and Esau, is that right? Birthright, hairy deception on the soup you know that story and Esau seeks to kill his younger brother again we see a fractured family Jacob has 12 sons you know the story the 11 sons persecute the younger they lie they cheat they seek to murder him and sell him into slavery they they lie to their father and we have a broken father whose sons are fractured the book of Genesis reads like a soap opera, doesn't it? I mean, it's like days of our lives, for goodness sake. It's like one drama after the next. Till you get to the book of Exodus and God's people that were a family now become a nation led under Moses. They are given a law which is meant to govern them civilly, which is a good thing because they needed secular law to deal with one another. But the other thing that that law did was that gave them a covenant relationship with God where God said, from now on, if you do the wrong thing, I will become your enemy. I will be out to get you. It wasn't a good deal, but they accepted it, and history tells the story. And that's what my book's about. Through the era of Exodus, you've got good leaders like Joshua, some of the judges. When God's people do the right thing, they are unified and they are blessed. When they do the wrong thing, they are cursed. And then eventually you come to the era of the kings with Saul and David and Solomon. And under David's rule, of course, God's people are united and they are blessed because they are obeying 
what God wants them to do. They are in a, an era of peace under David, or then eventually, of course, under Solomon. The family became a nation, and now the nation becomes a kingdom, and they are a united kingdom. They are united, and they are a force to be reckoned with as they take the promised land. Until the end of Solomon's life, and at the end of Solomon's life, his heart continually turns against the Lord. And God says, when you die, mate, I'm going to rip this kingdom apart. And again, we see a fractured family. Just before he dies, a prophet comes to a guy called Jeroboam, who's part of the tribe of Ephraim. And the prophet takes a cloak. He rips it into 12 pieces and he gives it to Jeroboam. And he says, I want you to take 10 of these pieces. The moment Solomon dies... The united kingdom is going to become divided. Solomon dies. He hands over to his son, Rehoboam, who makes some ridiculous tax decisions. Because he increases taxes in 1 Kings 11, the northern tribes separate themselves from the south. And the northern tribes become known as Israel. The southern tribes become known as Judah, which is basically the tribe of Judah. And the guys under Rehoboam, the guy who took the 10 pieces of the garment, he goes north and he says, we don't want to have anything to do with you down south. This united kingdom was now divided. Fractured family, divided relationships. We now have a divided kingdom. 10 tribes in the north and Judah down the south. And that's why sometimes when you read the prophets, you get a bit confused. Because it's like God's talking to two groups of people. He's talking to Israel and he's talking to Judah. What was one kingdom of Israel, one nation of Israel, one family of Israel is now a divided kingdom. With Israel up the north, their nickname or their other name is Ephraim because that first king was from the tribe of Ephraim. Okay, So sometimes it's called Ephraim and Judah down the south. And so the prophets will be prophesying to Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. So that's why it sometimes gets a bit confusing. Okay, The guys at Israel, they don't want their people to go down and worship at the temple anymore because they don't want to have anything to do with David. Stuff him. We don't want to have anything to do with those cousins down south. And so because of that, they build their own temples. And they appoint their own priests. They don't care about Levites. It doesn't matter who you are. If you want to be a priest, put your hand up. We'll make you a priest. And so they get into idolatry. And God says, because of this, the day will come where this whole northern kingdom is going to be wiped out. Okay? X number of years later, a couple of chapters later, we come to a king up in this northern area called Ahab. One of the worst ones they ever had. Okay? His name's Ahab. He marries a woman called Jezebel. And he takes Samaria in the northern area, the city of Samaria, and he puts his palace there and he puts a temple to Baal there and Samaria becomes the capital city of the north. Okay, Samaria, you need to hear this, Samaria becomes the capital city of this northern area. Years later, the Assyrians, who were the world power of the day, come in and they wipe out Israel. They do exactly what the prophets say. They say, if you disobey God, you've worshipped foreign gods, you've appointed anyone as priest, we're going to wipe this whole area out. And one of the main prophets at that time who's prophesying is a guy called Hosea. That's the whole book of Hosea. He's prophesying at this time when the northern kingdom are being taken away. And he uses this kind of language about them. He says that God himself has killed the northern tribes with the words of his prophets. 
Because the prophets were like lawyers. They're like prosecutors, okay? They've got the law and they prosecute according to the law. This is what you've done, Run. This is what's going to happen to you. That's the role that prophets fulfilled in the Old Testament, right? They're like persecuting lawyers. So they come and God says, I've killed you with my words. Like a lion, I have torn you apart with my mouth. He said, like a prostitute, I've now separated myself from you through jeremiah he says i wrote this northern people a certificate of divorce and i sent them away no longer my people no longer in covenant with me and god took them out of the land and scattered them hosea says they were swallowed up by the gentiles so this people that were god's people they were the ten tribes. He says, you are now no longer my people out of covenant with me, scattered into the Assyrian empire, no longer identifiable as God's people. They left the land and through Hosea, he says, they are now dead. Not physically dead. They are now covenantally dead. The most amazing thing happens after they are taken away. In, uh, what is it, First Kings 16 or 2, two Kings 16? How's my memory going? First Kings 16. Assyria takes them away. And the Assyrian king thinks, I can't let these cities in Samaria go to ruin. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send five foreign nations to come and live in Samaria. You're going to love this. I'm going to send five foreign nations to come and live in Samaria. And so five foreign groups come in and they all bring their own gods with them that they have covenant with, their own foreign gods. They worship their own gods in Samaria and then suddenly out of nowhere, all these lion attacks start happening. On the news, on Facebook, everywhere, there's lions killing people. And it gets so bad, they think, you know what, there is a territorial god that we're not worshipping. So what you need to do is they go back to the king of Assyria and they say, excuse me, we need to worship the God of this land. So would you please bring a priest, one of the ones that you captured, and send him back to teach us how we can worship Jehovah. So the king sends priests over to teach them how to worship Jehovah. But remember, these aren't real priests. They were not the genuine priests. And these are now Jewish people that are no longer in covenant with God. You can't see it yet, can you? They were in covenant with five gods. And then they started worshipping a god that they were not in covenant with. In a place called Samaria. In the Gospel of John, Jesus comes to a woman at a well in Samaria. He says, you have had a covenant with five men. The man you're with now is not your husband. But I have come as the perfect man. This was not just a word of knowledge for that individual woman who said, the man told me everything I've ever done. He was speaking to Samaria into their history. Just like you've had five men you've been in covenant with, you're in a de facto relationship now and I'm now the perfect man for you. So your people have had five gods you've been in covenant with. The God you're worshipping now is not your God at all, but I'm here as the perfect one offering you a new covenant of perfection and peace. No wonder the whole town came out. So this is all 2 Kings 17, or 1 Kings 17. These lions start attacking people, the people are in. This is the people of Israel. 
They are now scattered abroad and swallowed up in the nations. The prophets like Isaiah now start prophesying. And they say to the guys down the south in Jerusalem, the people of Judah, they say, you better learn from your big sister. You better learn the lesson and don't let this happen to you. But of course, the people of Judah do exactly the same thing. They worship false gods, they disobey him, and because of the covenant that they're in, God says the same destruction that came upon Israel will come upon you, Judah, except for one exception. You are the people that I've made a covenant with because of David. And because of David, I will not abandon you. I will be faithful to you throughout history. I'll, be, I'll continue to be faithful to you as my people. That's 120, 140 years later, he's prophesying to Judah. And a new world power is now in power. Assyria has been taken out of the political scene. And the kingdom of Babylon is now the ruling power. Their king is called Nebu. If you pronounce it slowly, if you spell it out, it's actually, it's actually Nebuchadnezzar. I just want you to know that. I'm in the Bible, okay? It's a bit subtle, but it's there. Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is the main king of the time, and he's got his sights set on Jerusalem. And it's in this period of time that there are three major prophets who prophesy. One is called Jeremiah who stays the whole time the war's happening. He's in Jerusalem and he's there prophesying, the city's coming down, the city's coming down, the city's coming down. No matter what anyone else says, this place is doomed. There's another prophet called Daniel. Now he's not in Jerusalem, he's up here with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and he is learning the ways and he's seeing what's happening and he knows, don't worry, it's going to happen, but it's only going to last for 70 years. There's another prophet by the name of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is actually in both places. He's in Jerusalem when the wars start happening, but during the second onslaught, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in the second time, it took three times to destroy Jerusalem, 586 BC, took three attempts. On the second attempt, Ezekiel gets taken away and he's in Babylon. And it's while he is in Babylon that he starts having visions for his people. He starts having visions for the people of Israel that 200, 150 years later, earlier, were taken away into Assyria. He had visions for those and he starts having people for the people in Jerusalem. And that they are visions of great hope that no matter how divided this family seems, God has a way, God has a means of uniting this family once more. Are you ready to turn to Ezekiel? Okay, chapter 30 something. Let's do it. 37. Chapter 37. Has that made any sense? Do you, sort of, do you sort of mostly follow that? Okay. That's a bit of Old Testament history today. All right. Ephraim, I only just thought about this the other, the other week, but Ephraim, I wonder why God chose Ephraim, the king to be from Ephraim and Judah. This, this whole thing about these two tribes of all the 12, it only just occurred to me recently, but it was those two guys. You know who else came from those two tribes? Joshua and Caleb. Way back here when, when in Moses' era, and he sends 10 spies in. It was Joshua and Caleb from Judah and Ephraim that were the good guys. And I just wonder if God has honored their legacy all the way through so that when he gave names to his divided kingdom, he called them Judah and Ephraim. It's just a theory. I don't care if it's, you know, whatever you can take it or leave it. Let's go to Ezekiel 37. A story you know well. I'll read it fast, but I'm going to make the point. Let's go. 
The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. I like that too. (laughs) It's the wisest thing to do if God asks you a question. Don't give an answer. Just say, "You, you know, Lord, you tell me. Don't be like Peter, okay, and blurts it. Just, well, you tell me, Lord, what do you think? Verse 4, then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. and The bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was still no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. You've all heard this story before, yeah? No point in hearing a story if you don't know what the point is. No point in a preacher giving an illustration if you don't know where he's going with it. What's your point, preacher? Well, Ezekiel now makes the point. This is not just a dramatic display to tickle Ezekiel's fancy, to give him, oh, this happened to me the other day. There's a point to it. There's a message behind it, and this is what the message is. He said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. Now listen to me. Can physical bones speak? These were not, this is not a, this is a physical picture describing a metaphor, a reality. The people of Israel who are alive and well are covenantally dead. They are cut off from the land. Remember? Taken away by the Assyrians. Cut off. They're away from the land. Like the younger brother in the parable. There's this Jewish understanding, a Hebrew understanding, that to be away from the land is to be away from life. The life is in the land. This is why the Bible, as you read through the Old Testament, when somebody dies, it doesn't just say they were cut off from life or cut off from the living. It says they were cut off from the land of the living. Because there's this understanding that to be alive is to be in the land that God wants you. There's life in the land. So in the story of the prodigal son, the younger son, when he, he didn't just leave his father's house, it makes a point, Jesus makes a point of saying he went to a foreign land. And so when he was found, when he came back to the land, back to the home, the father doesn't just say, my son was lost, but now he's found. He also says, says my son was dead, but now is alive. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, it's all about being lost, found, lost, found the story of the son was being lost found and dead but now alive it's a story of resurrection because he was cut off from the land he was out of his father's home covenantally cut away but now he's come back and he is figuratively speaking resurrected to life okay so this is this hebrew understanding this is what ezekiel is saying the people of god are saying our hope is cut off 
We're cut off from the land and it's as if we were dead. A bunch of dry bones. They're not physically dead. They are covenantally dead. And God says, I'm breathing new life to you. Because restoration comes through the prophetic breath. Therefore, verse 12, prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Again, this is not physical graves. It's a physical picture to describe a covenantal reality. It's relational death that they're coming out of, okay, into, new, into life with God. Just like at the start of this service, we all said we were dead, but now we're alive in Christ. We've experienced a resurrection of relationship. Then you, my people, will know I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I've done it, says the Lord. At which point in history did God put his spirit into people? The new covenant. So all throughout history, God's spirit came upon his people, but he's prophesying a time when you will come to life. And linked with that is where my spirit will be in you. So I think what Ezekiel is doing here is he's pointing to a new covenant era where the nations that were dead are coming to life. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Joseph, Ephraim, and all the Israelites associated with him. Join them together into one stick, so they will become one in your hand. Say, the two shall be one. People down the north, south, people in the north, Judah, Ephraim, the two will be one. Now, what's the point of that illustration? Verse 18. When people ask you, tell us what you mean by this. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph in Ephraim and the Israelite tribes associated with him, the north, and join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you've written on and say to them, this is what God says. I will take the Israelites out of all the nations where they've gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and there will be one king over all of them and they will never again be two nations or divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with idols and vile images or any offenses for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them they will be my people and i will be their god that's covenant language isn't it i will cleanse them from all their sin what does that sound like new covenant all right i'm gonna have a covenant where my god's people are going to come together as one my servant david will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd they will follow my lords and be careful to keep my decrees now, is this saying that physical David is going to physically rise from the dead and physically be king? Or is this prophesying a new covenant? Spirit of God in people, cleansing of sin. Jesus is the, the king who is David. Okay, it's the metaphor. Jesus is king. They will live in the land I gave to my servant where your ancestors live. They and their children, their children's children will live forever. And David will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them and ever 
lasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers and put my sanctuary among them. My dwelling place will be them. I'll be their God. They will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make my people holy as my sanctuary is among them forever. I want to propose something to you. Catch this. In 570-something, 590-something B.C., Almost 600 years, 600 years before Christ, let's just say that. Ezekiel prophesied these words of a new covenant. Two becoming one, a divided family together again, with a king who will rule forever, a new covenant and a new government. He prophesied these words in Babylon, just before Jerusalem fell, 600 years BC, and he did so by taking two sticks, walking around, holding them together, saying, don't worry, my people, there is hope, there is hope. I want you to take a stick that represents the people in the south. I want you to take a stick that represents those who've been scattered, who are from the north, that are scattered and absorbed by the nation. I want you to take those sticks and hold them together as one. And it occurred to me, you know, Ezekiel's walking around 600 years BC holding two sticks together as one. And it makes sense that he would hold them like this because it looks like a weapon. But it occurred to me, is it possible that 600 years BC he held those sticks together like this? Is it possible... That 600 years BC, while God's people are worried about what the heck is going to happen to our future, that Ezekiel walked around saying, don't worry, there is hope. The two will become one. There's a new covenant. There's a new covenant coming. There is an outpouring of the Spirit. There's a resurrection of the dead ones. Those who have been scattered abroad out of relationship with God will be brought back. We will be one united kingdom together under a king called David. Don't worry. New resurrection life is on the way. At the same time, Ezekiel is holding these sticks together and prophesying this in Babylon. There's a guy called Jeremiah stuck down in Jerusalem while the whole thing's going down bad. And most of his prophecy is pretty doom and gloom because this is the end for the city. Except there's a few chapters of hope. And by coincidence, they happen to be chapters 30, 31, 32, 33. I say coincidence because that's the ages of Jesus when he ministered on the earth. And in chapter 30, Jeremiah's down here amongst all the doom and gloom and he says, don't worry, there's a time coming where God will unite his scattered family again as one and he will make a new covenant with them. In the next chapter, in chapter 31, he says, I will make a new covenant with them because this is the covenant. It won't be like the old covenant that I made with Israel, but there will be a new covenant where I write my laws on their hearts. I reconcile my people to myself, chapter 31, by giving them a new covenant. In chapter 32, he says, not only will they have been united with me, God, but they will have singleness of heart and they will work together as one united force again. And in chapter 33, he says, I promise that I will forever have a king from David's line on my throne. The throne was about to come down. And he said, no, 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 David's always going to have a king on this throne. And not only that, but there will always be a priest 
to minister before God forever. He prophesied the royal priesthood. He prophesied the king priest in those chapters. While Ezekiel, at the same time, is saying there is a king coming. There is a covenant coming. And it is a covenant of peace. In the gospel, God's people, the Gentile nations, those who are apart from God, even those who have nothing, no Jewish heritage they can ever trace, it represents the Jewish Gentiles that were far away. And God says, I've brought you near by the cross. I've united you in this first century. That was what was happening in the first century. The old and the new coming together as one family united in Christ. One new king, a new covenant, and a family united together in him. That's the history lesson. Here's the modern day application. Because timeless truth is good. Always good. I want you to go home and read your Bibles and when you open the prophets, know what it's talking about now. Because you understand, there was a divided kingdom. He's talking to that group and then this group. I want you to go home and read Kings. And read stories about lion attacks and it makes sense to you now. I want you to go home and I want you to read the Old Testament and I want you to see the progress of God's family becoming a nation, God's nation becoming a kingdom, a divided kingdom, becoming a scattered kingdom, having the promise of unity, which we know our Messiah brings in the first century and is still happening today as God gathers his scattered people all over the world to come together with him. I want you to read the prophets and I want you to see the language that they use, this metaphoric, beautiful language that describes what it's like to be separate from God, to be covenantally dead, but have the promise of resurrection life. And I want you to see that Jesus fulfills all those prophecies. But I don't just want you to know history. Because everything that was written was written in the past to teach us so that we may have hope which I think is a pretty good word for this church like I said at the start and some of you have broken families some of you have actually been in relationships where they've literally used that term you are dead to me some of you have experiences so you've seen church networks you've seen church families where there's division maybe you're seeing it now maybe you're not but maybe you are maybe you're looking at our political situation maybe you've got a heart for America right now seeing what's happened this week in Charlottesville, etc. And you're thinking, man, is there any way people can be unified? Is there any way two poles apart people? Because what happened by the time you get to the first century after all this Ahab nonsense in Samaria is that Jewish people wouldn't even walk through their towns. They'd go around the long way. There was such a hatred, a dichotomy between people. We just can't have anything to do with them. No matter how divided a group is, no matter how broken a relationship may be, The power of the cross is able to bring people together. Peace with God and peace with one another. And through partnership with the people that speak the prophetic word and who prophesy to dead relationships. Prophesy to dead bones. Those relationships are dead. Prophesy to those bones and say, you will live. Some of you, if you've got any glimmer of hope, for a broken relationship and you want to walk away with something practical today 
I want you to meet with someone, maybe someone in this ministry team and say, let's together prophesy over this broken relationship and speak life to those bones and speak the working of the Spirit to come and breathe on them. So that's a practical outworking of what we can do today. When I preach, I want to minister to people's heads, hearts and hands. I want you to walk away with information today because good information is good for you. <laughs> okay, the renewing of your mind, it's important the way you think. I want you to learn something today. Information can be good. I want that. But or I can't, you just can't walk away with head knowledge today. I hope something today touched your heart. If not anything, I hope that you see something of the faithfulness of God through Scripture. Maybe what touched your heart is the knowledge that even a perfect father can be the father of a fractured family. It's not necessarily a testimony of your parenting. Some of you might need to hear that today. What did I do that my adult kids are doing that? Well, maybe nothing. Maybe nothing. And I hope today you, your hands are ministered to. I want to leave you with something practical. Heads, hearts and hands. You can leave today going, you know, when I see a broken relationship that needs restoring... I will declare they can be one under a new covenant and under a new king. And by the power of the spirit of life, speak life into broken families. Andrew and I were just talking yesterday about the division we're seeing in politics and the division we're seeing in America and other places and their left and their right and all that sort of stuff. And I just, God just gave me a nice little friendly rebuke to say, you know, it's good, you're fine to discuss all that. Be an observer. Observe society. Observe culture. But beyond observing what's happening physically, ask me what your role is in speaking life into those situations. No prizes are given to people who can see a problem. That's the easiest thing in the world. Some people have that ministry. I'm here to point out problems. That's my job, okay? <laughs> now listen, if you can see it and you can speak it, then you can solve it. If you can see it, you can solve it. And many of the prophets, their lament became, their lament, you know what I mean by lament? Their, their problem that they saw became their ministry. It's actually fine to see things that are wrong, but we need to watch what comes out of our mouth and understand that no matter how divided things may be, I play a part in being a person that speaks hope. Resurrection life, no matter even how dead a situation may seem, there is hope. We were dead, but now we are alive. And through the cross, the dividing wall of hostility between groups of people have been broken down, and we can be one in his hand. Amen.